Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. We want to predict the likelihood of crime happening. Where are crime hotspots and why do people commit crime? Well, there's thousands of books that help us understand why people do bad things. We want to look at why is it that most people don't? Why is it that most people obey the laws? And we think if we can figure out why they obey the law, that may put us in a different position to understand remedies and solutions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Finally, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming on our show uh, a senior fellow of the Austin Institute that I've been meaning to interview and to meet in person to for a long time now, Professor Byron Johnson. Good morning, Byron, and welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you. I say I wanted to have you on the show for a long time, and you know it's true because I've been emailing you back and forth a couple of times. And perhaps the audience will also understand why this was a particular interest of mine after they hear more about your scholarship and about your latest accomplishments. So how about you start by introducing yourself and then maybe I will add what is missing. Sure. Yeah. My name is Byron Johnson. I came to Baylor in 2004. I was previously at the University of Pennsylvania. And before that, I was at Vanderbilt University. And for the last, oh, 30 years, I have been in a position of directing research centers at a number of different places. And that focus has usually been on the study of religion on the one hand and the study of crime and delinquency on the other hand, two passions of mine. Although there are plenty of colleagues here at the Institute for Studies of Religion that do all kinds of research on religion from historical perspectives. We have an epidemiologist, for example, on board and sociologists and psychologists, economists. So all interested in the study of religion and so I myself am a Christian, and religion's always been important in my life. And so to have the opportunity to do empirical studies of religion has been a great joy of mine, and basically using data to help us understand a little bit more clearly how religion impacts public life, and to do so in a way that advances our knowledge in the academy and the scientific realms, which is another treat. I run a think tank on religion, essentially. Scholars from diverse fields and disciplines all studying religion. That's what I came to Baylor to do, and we've been doing that for a number of years now. And I guess you could argue we're the largest research center in the world dedicated to empirical studies on religion. So religion is kind of an overlooked topic, Mariana, and I know that may sound odd, but if you just look at the academy religion tends to be kind of a neglected subject. You'd think that something so pervasive would not be neglected, but it is. So a number of scholars are now and have been interested in the last few decades of bringing religion into the mainstream of their disciplines. And that's an ongoing struggle, but we've made a lot of progress in the last several decades. So when I was in graduate school, for example, I was studying crime and there was no research on religion. Yeah. 
You may say that it may sound odd. It doesn't sound odd to our ears. We had a seminar here and also a very fruitful conversation on this podcast with Professor Robert Coons, another senior fellow, and he was talking precisely about science and religion and the mistaken understanding, you know, that they are in conflict. So it is particularly fascinating to you when you set data on religion. You know, like a scientific study of religion is actually mm. probably the perfect continuation of this conversation that we started. Sure. Very recently. Be- yeah. Yeah. I think for some of your listeners, they won't find it odd. But for the general public, I think that they would find it odd because they see religion everywhere around them. And, you know, 95% of the people in the U.S. believe in God. And so there's a, a high sense of religious recognition and affiliation here. And so I think people would assume that universities would also have a lot to do with religion since it's so important in society. And of course, we feel like whatever we can do to highlight the role of religion, we should do that, not just as a mission, but as almost an obligation. It's an important factor in society. And I think that would be hard for anyone to deny. But yet it's underrepresented in most of our academic disciplines And of course, what our center here is dedicated to kind of changing that. I really think it's important because just yesterday I was speaking with someone that was saying, you know, I'm religious, but I'm against religion when it's all about prejudice and ignorance. And so there is this thing of bringing the scientific aspect of it and just, you know, stop thinking that it's all about superstition and prejudice, but that there are things that we can study and that are positive. And and I know, I mean, I want to get into your criminology studies and the role of religion there. But I think that, I don't know if it's forgetfulness of humility, but I would like to add some of the things about you that you might have not mentioned. So yes, you're the finding director of the Baylor Institute for the Studies of Religion, and you are the director of the program on pro-social behavior. You are a leading authority on the scientific study of religion, the efficacy of faith-based organization, and criminal justice. You have an immense list of publications which people can find easily by looking you up. And you completed a series of studies for the Department of Justice on the role on religion in pro-social youth behavior. You've served as a member of the Coordinating Council for Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention by a presidential appointment. You have worked on a longitudinal studies of court-referred adolescents and 12-step recovery program. And I know that you will soon start another longitudinal study, but that's something we'll keep for another episode. For now, what I wanted to talk about now is that you've recently been in the news for a study that you did about a program sponsored by Prison Fellowship International. You did some research there. It was a recent at Baylor, which showed how some faith-based programs are working. And so in particular, Mm -hmm. the ones promoted by Prison Fellowship International. So that's, I think, where I would like to go before getting there, as I like to do it. I said, you know, I really wanted to have you here. And the reason is I'm a criminal lawyer and I've dedicated my PhD to criminal law. And if there is one thing that distinguishes criminal law from every other form of law, from tort for civil law, is precisely punishment. And Mm. what is the goal of punishment? And there are different views between the U.S. and Europe. We've certainly come from. So I'm very interested in understanding. Let us learn something about you. Where did your interest in criminology start? and your instrument in prison and in prisoners. Sure. You know, when I was in graduate school, I was actually studying psychology. And through a weird set of circumstances, 
I heard about a position that was open for a parole officer in the town where I lived. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if I could apply for that position. And I did. So fresh out of college, just beginning graduate school, I applied for graduate school, got in. And then this opening at this position, I applied for it. And it worked out to where I could be a parole officer by day and a graduate student by night, kind of like that. And I was really fascinated with all that I was exposed to in the criminal justice system. And so for about a year, I did that and then realized I couldn't kind of do two things at once. So I just focused on graduate school and kind of shifted to criminology as my area of study. And that led me on to do a PhD in criminology. So my background, sociology, criminology, to a lesser extent, psychology. And so just the exposure to that job for a year was fascinating because I was able not only to work with offenders, but I was able to visit correctional facilities. And I thought this is something that I could really enjoy doing as an academic discipline. So that's how I got interested in it. And then it was just a natural progression within criminology to want to look at the role that religion may or may not play. How might religion keep people out of trouble in the first place? So what we call a protective factor. And then for those people that do end up in trouble, how might religion be a tool for helping to rehabilitate offenders and help them make a positive step, a new trajectory? And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the last three decades, that kind of work. It's absolutely fascinating. Parole officer by day and graduate student by night. I think some of the people that are listening maybe are interested in contributing to society might take this as a suggestion on what they could do sometime during the day. I was interested, you mentioned rehabilitation. So what's the role of religion in rehabilitating? And that, again, before we get into the study, it's sort of like a general premise of what we think the role of the criminal system is and what the role of punishment is. So somehow you said it, but I would like to hear it from you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an age-old discussion that we're having right now, this issue of, you know, what are prisons for? Are they just to incapacitate people where we can keep people segregated from society for a specific period of time as a means of protecting society and deterring future behavior? But if you look back at the founding of prisons, in the U.S., there really was a rehabilitative component that was attached to the whole process of incarceration. If you look at just the language that we use, why do we call it corrections? Why do we use terms like penitentiary? So the term penitentiary now has a negative connotation, but it's derived from the word penitence. And so if you look at many of the terms that we now use, solitary confinement, is also seen as a negative term, of course, because it's not good for your mental health to be locked up in isolation like that. But the original idea behind solitary confinement was solace. Let's lock this person up away and apart from everybody else. And in the solace of that cell, they'll see the air of their ways. So there are lots of religious or spiritual overtones to many of the terms that we use in criminal justice and in prisons. 
And so there's always been this tension between punishment and rehabilitation. And as you might imagine, when you have these kind of what some people would say conflicting goals, the punishment side has prevailed because how do you rehabilitate people? That too is something that we've been trying to figure out for many, many decades. It's not an easy process and you can argue it's a very expensive process. And so when money gets tight, what gets cut? The programs get cut, but the security side is always going to be represented. So that's why religion becomes important because now I would argue, and I think the research confirms this, that a lot of the rehabilitative programming that has not been cut is done by volunteers at no cost to the government. And these volunteers are largely religious volunteers, not secular. So you can argue, where are all the secular people that care so much about a rehabilitative approach? Where are they? And because the overwhelming majority of people that go into prisons to help inmates learn how to read and write and help them with job preparation, et cetera, they tend to be religious volunteers and the programs tend to be run by religious people that are motivated out of faith. So there's always going to be this tension. And I think what we're arguing in our recent publications is that most of the innovation is coming from the faith community. Yeah. And I think that what is also interesting, if I may add, is that True, you know, you can cut the rehabilitation program, but I've read something about your studies. What these shows, if you only focus on punishment, you're going to generate a lot of issues with the kids of the prisoners, with the families of the prisoner, with the communities of the prisoners, which in the long run just generates more crime, more desperation and more costs. So, yes, you know, it's like investing in education, right? You think it's better. Well, let's send my kid to go and work instead of paying for college. Well, it might not be a smart move. So tell us about this Prison Fellowship International project that, again, got you in the news on the prisoner's journey. That's what you studied, right? Yes. And so back up just a little bit. So there's Prison Fellowship, then there's Prison Fellowship International. Prison Fellowship started in 1976. The key figure there was Chuck Colson. That name will mean something to your older listeners. He was in the Richard Nixon administration And he was one of the Watergate figures that actually went to prison. And he was known as the hatchet man for Richard Nixon. But he came to faith. And when he got out of prison, he started a ministry to prisoners called Prison Fellowship. It's the largest such ministry in the world. So Prison Fellowship is the domestic part of that. And then Prison Fellowship International was launched a few years later to basically extend that level of faith-based programs around the world, not just here in the U.S. So Prison Fellowship International, PFI as we call it, reached out to us to do research for them because we have done so much research on Prison Fellowship in the U.S. So one of the first things that they did is they said, look, we've got this program. It's called the Prisoner's Journey. It's a Bible-based curriculum that helps inmates find solutions for their life through participating in this program. And thousands of offenders have participated in this program. And they basically wanted research that would determine whether or not it actually helped. They believed it helped. Like most ministries, they believe their programs work. But we always tell people those are all empirical questions. You don't know if they work unless you really put them to the test. So that's what we did, both in South Africa 
and in Colombia, South America. We selected a number of prisons and developed a research design that would allow us to test offend or survey offenders before participation in the program and then survey them after completion of the program. And then again, over time, to see how it affects them in their behavior while they're incarcerated. And how does that affect them? What's the finding? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things, and, you know, we're looking at prisoners that are incarcerated for significant periods of time. And so one of the things you want to know is, as inmates look at their own situation, who do they blame for being incarcerated? Plenty of people will say they were wrongfully convicted. I mean, we know that some people are wrongfully convicted, but it's a very small percent. And so it's kind of like addicts. An addict that denies they have a problem is someone that's not going to be helped very much through this program until they get to the point where they admit that they have an issue. And so in a similar way, when you're studying prisoners, you know, who do they blame? Do they blame society for the fact that they're incarcerated or do they blame themselves? And so we ask a bunch of questions that deal with topics like that. And then we give them scenarios. How would you respond to this situation? And we tell them there's no right answer or there's no wrong answer, but we want to know how they feel about things. So we're asking them about their experiences that they're now having. And then we ask them questions that deal with virtues. So like responsibility taking or accountability, or forgiveness. I mean, if you're an offender, many offenders are angry that they're incarcerated, and they're angry at people because they are incarcerated. And so what happens is for many of them, they live, like you mentioned, the word despair. Life is pretty ugly for them right now. They're in a dark place, and they're going to be there for a long time. And so we're interested in how they respond to all of these things. How do they adjust to living in an environment that's pretty bleak? And especially when you look at places in the third world, like Colombia, where the conditions are so terrible and there's such overcrowding, it would be a shock for your listeners if they knew how bad the situation was. So essentially what we find is as prisoners participate in a program like this, and we look at prisoners who participate and prisoners that don't. So we want to have a control group and an experimental group that gets the intervention. And what we find is that inmates that complete the prisoner's journey are much more likely, after they've gone through that program, to indicate that they're in prison because of mistakes that they've made, that they now feel bad about. They're much more likely to experience forgiveness In other words, I'm willing to forgive people that I have a problem with or issues with. I'm willing to forgive myself. A lot of inmates or a lot of people hate themselves. You know, this is why we have a suicide problem, among other reasons. So we ask questions about gratefulness and gratitude, generosity. Why? Because we want to know if a faith-based program can help people become more pro-social instead of anti-social. I want to stop you because you, you mentioned the word pro-social, which is, I think, most of what you have focused your attention on in dealing with these programs. And I know you recently published a collection of essays, and we're going to link on our podcast to the book, The Restorative Prison, 
you co-authored this with two other professors, Michael Hallett and Sung Jung Yang. I hope I didn't say the words wrong. Okay, great. But you focus a lot on pro-social behavior, the role of faith there, saying that criminology is focused only on the anti-social one. So Yeah, I think that's a great point, Mariana, because for decades, we want to predict the likelihood of crime happening. Where are crime hotspots and why do people commit crime? Well, there's thousands of books that help us understand why people do bad things. We want to look at why is it that most people don't? Why is it that most people obey the laws? And we think if we can figure out why they obey the law, that may put us in a different position to understand remedies and solutions. And so why is it that some offenders actually do turn around and get a new identity? How does that happen? How can we actually confirm that that's happening? And so one of the things that we find when we were studying this program called The Prisoner's Journey is that these guys are much more likely to experience a conversion, if you will, much more likely to develop a relationship with God. And so we use the term religiosity. They now become religious and they begin to participate in other religious activities, some of them for the first time and some of them for the first time in a long time. And then as they participate in those activities, they begin to experience these virtues in their life. So for example, you could argue, I'm gonna do time I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to do my time and get out of here. And if anyone gets in my way, I may have to hurt them. That's kind of a typical attitude. But what you're looking for is for someone to say, I know I need help and I don't want to always distrust everybody. And how can I serve others? And so one of the measures that we look for to see, is this person really a new person is, are they other minded? versus narcissistic. And I think society does a very good job, regrettably, of helping people to be focused only on themselves. But I think, you know, religious traditions are often speaking about how can we care about the other, our neighbor? And what we find among prisoners is that if there is this genuine kind of authentic conversion experience, they do become other-minded They do try to serve their fellow neighbors in prison. And when they do that, of course, they experience these changes in their own behavior. And we see this time and time again in most of the studies that we do where they're not in trouble. You know, suicide goes down or suicidal ideation goes down. And that despair that you mentioned is replaced by hope. So for many prisoners, that's the thing. They've lost hope and they've lost purpose. So if you've lost those things and you feel like your life has no meaning, you can understand why all you want to do is get high all the time. And, you know, if you want to find drugs, they're available in any prison that you might go into. And so I'll stop there. Yeah, no, there is also this thing about hating yourself. Somehow, Mm -hmm. if punishment gets to its goal, which is, you know, oh, underline to you how bad it is what you did and you really understand it, but... If you understand it only and then you don't feel yourself, the love and the forgiveness, then you will only end up hating yourself for what you did. And if that is the starting point, then there is absolutely no hope because you would never believe in anyone being able to accept you 
Yes, that's so important. And I think for so many offenders, here's the tragic situation. They either deny their past and say that, you know, I didn't do those things, which means they're never going to really make any progress. But these faith-based programs like the Prisoner's Journey actually help them to reconcile their past. You know what? That did happen. I did do a terrible thing. I'm sorry that I've done it, but God has forgiven me. And now what I want to do is to say, how can I start my life over again and admit that the person that I was did those things. It's not the person that I want to be or I am becoming. So, you know, we call it the old self versus the new self. This allows me to make sense of a very dark past instead of denying it. I accept it, but it's not who I am now. And it certainly isn't who my future self will be. And I think that, you know, these Bible-based programs, there's plenty of scripture that helps people come to that place of developing a new identity. And some of them would say a new identity in Christ that allows them to turn a new leaf in life. And this is very powerful. We see it happen in correctional facilities everywhere, not just here in the U.S., but indeed in South Africa, in Colombia, and very soon we hope to be doing research in Europe as well, possibly Korea, Egypt, even in some Muslim-majority countries, we hope to be launching research with Prison Fellowship International that would allow us to see if these programs work in those contexts as well. Well, I would be very interested to see the results we were chatting early in secular Europe and see if religion can have a good effect there too. But as a provocation, I know that some of our audience, you know, is not necessarily religious or still looking for some sort of faith. But as a provocation, I think that what we just mentioned about the Christian God being a vehicle, an instrument for forgiveness and reconciliation of an old self and a new self, we can argue that our secular society is incapable of doing precisely this. Like the cancel culture, right? You did something 15 years ago, you're still unforgivable. And this must be, I think, especially for the younger audience we have. You know, let's say that they don't have a religion, let's say they're 18. Do you really want to live in a world that is going to hold you accountable forever for the mistake yeah. you're going to make when you're 21? Something yes. you wrote, something you said, the wrong job, you know, like, yeah. So I think that there is something, even if we were just arguing for a very general idea of God, some of the theism of the founders, we would probably still be in a better place than we are in society today. I'm so glad you made that connection. That's a brilliant connection because cancel culture basically says, you know, we want to cancel that as if it didn't happen. The difference is in religion, we acknowledge it happened. It was a tragedy. But even in a tragedy, there's hope that God can restore. It's not as pessimistic as our secular society would want us to believe. We believe that there is hope for everyone and that people can change. And we see evidence. We see plenty of empirical evidence that that can happen and does happen rather frequently. If I were an atheist and I were to hear this podcast, I would say, just from a strictly utilitarian point of view, do I want these people 
that are all coming out of prison, would I prefer that they participate in a faith-based program that helps them become someone quite different than the person that went to prison five or 10 years ago? Or do I want that person to come out of prison as a more hardened criminal with less hope and less despair and more anger? Is that what I want? And my thinking is, if I were a completely secular person, an atheist, I would say, get them any and all programs that they can participate in, more power to them. But I think instead, because sometimes people are so misguided, they actually don't want these programs to flourish. And so we're constantly fighting people within the academy that would say programs like these are unconstitutional. They shouldn't be allowed to exist in prisons. And so there is pushback against these kinds of efforts, believe it or not. No, I believe it. As you say, you know, what is even more ridiculous is that usually these programs are run for free, so at no cost for the state. If I may, you said that they do lead to change. I just want to mention one example before I let you go, but I want to mention one example that I think worked very well. It was an interesting story for me to read in your article, 2021, it's a very recent, How Religion Contributes to the Common Good, Positive Criminology and Justice Reform, that is one of the essays in the restorative prison. You talk about this very hard prison in Louisiana, Angola is the name, mm -hmm. and you say 75% yes. of the prisoners there are life sentence and without hope of parole. So there we're talking about the role of religion and religion-based programs for people that are not even, there's not even a question that they're going to be back in society, right? Right. So what are the interesting facts about that, yeah, that story? Yeah, that prison, you know, Angola, it's named because it used to be a plantation and the slaves came from Angola, Africa. So this prison is located on the grounds of a former plantation and long known as one of the most violent and corrupt prisons in America. A warden went there in 1995 and launched a Bible college within the prison and allowed the inmates to establish congregations. So you have 29 and counting, independent congregations within the prison itself led by inmates. And some of the correctional staff actually attend the congregations where the pastors and the leadership are in fact serving life in prison. And so I've heard people say, oh, this is all an act. They're doing this so that they'll get an early release. I'm thinking, these guys aren't getting out. You know, why would they want to try to fake people to think that I'm believing God, so I'll get an early release. No, in Louisiana, life sentence means that you will die in prison. And what we've seen there is a dramatic reduction in inmate-on-inmate -inmate violence, inmate-on-staff violence, suicides, almost zero suicides. And suicides happen much more often in prison than they happen in society at large. So just a dramatic turnaround that we witnessed doing research there for five years and interviewing literally thousands of prisoners over time. Yeah, And, as and so a dramatic turnaround. Sorry, as you said, what is unique about this program is that the congregations are led by the prisoner themselves. So you don't have a minister coming from the outside, but they become responsible for teaching basically to their other fellow inmates about forgiveness and about reconciling your past. I think this may be, Mariana, a peak 
into the future in that our best hope for solving much of what is wrong with our prisons is to look inside the prisons for the answer. And it will be an inmate-led reform movement instead of experts from the outside coming in to say, here's what you need to do. What we're seeing in places like Angola, which is the darkest of the darkest prisons where corruption was rampant, is that once these inmates were unleashed to serve other inmates, and that's what they would say, they've been giving their life away now in service to other inmates that are also serving life. And, you know, to go there and spend days and weeks observing, you get to see these people at all hours of the day. Each congregation, we got to see them interact. And so it really is not an act. And people from around the world have traveled to the swamps of Louisiana to see what's going on there. And what it is, is an awakening, a religious movement led by offenders themselves. And we think that this is a big part of what will happen in other prisons and is beginning to happen in other. So not 29 states now have started seminaries as a result of that work there in Angola. Absolutely fascinating, Byron. And because of also my past interests and continued interest, you know, in justice, cancel culture, the meaning of a trial, the meaning of punishment, I could keep talking forever. But I often do this, especially with our fellow, if you can promise that you will be with us again to talk more about uh, your research and other uh, programs. I'd love to. And the Austin Institute has become such a pillar there in Austin. And we desperately need organizations like the Austin Institute and the great work that they're doing and that you're doing. And so I'd love to come back and be on your show again. And, and of course, I love when I can come down to Austin and talk to students firsthand. That's always a treat. And I look forward to that. Yeah. So we'll make that happen in the spring. I'm going to work on it. So thank you very much, Byron, and have a Bye. great day and see you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.